A very big welcome to the Power of Genetics podcast, my friend, foremost, and colleague of many, many years, Amanda Archibald is joining me today on the Power of Genetics, and I have been waiting a good couple of years to have an opportunity to have this conversation with you, Amanda, so a very big welcome. I couldn't be happier to be chatting with my friend again, this time on the same continent. Yes, we've had many conversations on the continent of Africa so um, yes. and, and spread across to the US. So this is really wonderful that um, we're not even, we're only like half a country away from each other. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we both have blue sky today. So that's great. So um, it's very unusual when I, when I have someone as a guest on the Power of Genetics that they have had a very similar journey to me and work in a very similar space to me. And also I've had some of the same challenges as I've had. So really, really fun to, to be talking with you when I know that you and I have been like kind of soldiers marching along, fighting our battles, um, but, but really, really sure that everyone wants to hear about your journey. And I am going to try and kind of hang in the background because I am looking forward to hearing, you know, obviously I know your work so well, you know, um, genomic kitchen, nutrigenomics, teaching culinary nutrigenomics. Like I know the, I know that work, but I don't think you and I have ever had a conversation about why, like, where did this start for you? So, so just so everyone knows, you know, Amanda, like, like myself, um, is a registered dietitian, is a dietitian, we both deeply, deeply immersed in the world of nutrigenomics and teaching. Um, but what I don't know, Amanda, and what I would love is if we can go back to the beginning and tell us where it all started for you. Yeah, now let's let's go. And please interject because there's so many twists and turns along the way in our own lives, which I think is so fascinating, um, especially, you know, mentioning are being on the same continent for a while, maybe in, in Africa and just loving that. But where it started with me, as I often tell the story, is I grew up in Europe. And so my table, like yours, is set differently. Our culture is different. Our what we were exposed to and maybe what was important as kids and growing up was completely different. So my table and my life started in Europe. And my dad grew vegetables, you know, and my mom was a good cook. And so, you know, there was no question about the role of food in our lives. But growing up in England, you know, I grew up with the back garden. I grew up with cool bakeries and the local butcher and all this wonderful stuff. Grew up with a great sense of community. Grew up riding horses and whatever. And my first degree was have nothing to do with nutrition and nutrition science. It had to do with languages, because being European by birth, right, you know, it's not that by any means every European speaks three languages in England, far from the point, but, you know, my first degree was in language and linguistics. I speak three languages, um, you know, part of my yes. university. Tell us, Amanda, tell us what they are. It'll, I um, think people will understand a lot about you by the languages you chose. Yes, I speak, um, so obviously English, but British English, which you know, being South African, is idiomatically different from the American, from American language. English, yeah. 
us too, you know? It's like the world separated. We speak the same language, but we mean completely different things and we pronounce things differently. And it's funny and our jokes are different and our frames of reference are different. And I don't know about you, but things today will pop in my head from British culture. And I'll say something, and my husband like, what did you just say? Oh, it means, I, this is what we Oh, say. I have that. Do you okay? I just have to side sidebar here. I don't know if it's British because I have this idiom that I use, which I absolutely love. And every American looks at me as though I've lost the plot completely. I always say, You landed with your bum in the butter. Is that uh, do you use that in in English? No, but I know exactly what it means. But you know what yeah. I mean, right? It means like you've done really well, whatever you like. Yeah, exactly. You've done really well. I was like, yeah. a two peas in a pod, you know, like they were just yeah, all these Okay. Yeah, it's really, or one of the things I'll say is like, oh, it swings and roundabouts. Yes, that's uh, South African as well. Yeah. Say, you know, I can't remember what the Americans, we understand it, or uh, I can't remember what the equivalent is, but it's kind of funny because we're immersed in an international community, you and I, because we grew up, like the worked internationally. And so it's always interesting to be now immersed in American culture and we kind of, a bilingual in our cultures or multilingual. So, so I, anyway, to answer your question, I speak French and German. I was the only kid in school that studied Latin. I had no idea why I studied Latin, but you know, it really helped me, um, you know, in many, many ways. And, you know, having lived in many culture, uh, countries, when I lived in Italy for a year, it was relatively easy for me to pick up Italian, uh, you know, to start to speak it faster than people who lived there for a long time. So my brain, uh, works for me like you to pick up languages pretty fast you know I'll be nodding and understanding even if I can't speak it but so my okay, first before you carry on I have a question for you <laughs> do you think there is a gene or a, a polygenic risk score maybe for learning languages I don't know. yeah it's definitely an ear and it's home. I don't know the answer to that. Because I'll tell you why. I am awful with languages. I mean, I have been subjected to multiple languages in my life. Right. And they are extremely difficult for me. Extremely difficult for me. And I'm not mm. like, you know, I generally learn quite easily, but not languages. And so I've yeah. always had this theory. And perhaps you and I need to do some research on this one day. Is, is, um, is, is there, are there genes that determine why for some people languages come so easily and for people right. like me i'm so envious um they don't but we'll 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 put a pin in that and maybe we need well, to talk maybe. about that another time. it's a really good point because it may be um how we see things too and that i get a lot of thinking around that but you know how uh, brilliant musicians are often brilliant mathematicians right and so yes. It's true. It's, maybe almost like somebody listening will have an idea, but I think there's, I think it may be nature versus nurture. I moved a lot as a kid in the UK. And interestingly enough, wherever I moved, it, I got the dialect. And people say, like, wait a minute, did you grow up in Liverpool or whatever? No, I live close to Liverpool. So when I came to live in the United States, the first place I lived in was New York State, not New York <laughs> City. But you, but Sure enough, people say, are you from New York or New Jersey? No, but it's the first language I heard. So it, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. There's some, okay. There's... So you studied, and, and I have yeah. to tell you, uh, anyone who, who, who listens to many of these podcasts, almost every single person I interview 
is a second career um, um, health practitioner, or while they were studying to be a health professional, they were studying something else. Yesterday, I, I spoke with Dr. David Katz. Wow. I mean, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, wow. But wow. He's a poet and he studied poetry yeah. and literature. And I mean, he's like talking to a philosopher and yeah. yet has had probably one of the greatest impacts on health promotion globally. And yet we spoke more about poetry than we spoke about nutrition. And, and yeah. here I am again, having a conversation with someone who's had a huge impact on the world of nutrition is telling me that their first degree was, um, and you know, mine was architecture um, right. and, and yours was languages and linguistics. So, so it proves my point, another theory of mine. Okay, so then okay, what happened? The Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 it's your turn now. It's supposed to be. The other thing about studying language and linguistics is it really is a science. So my, I'm much more pro, um, proficient in German than French. So I lived in Germany, spoke German uh, a lot longer, but it's a very, it's a very meticulous language, like Afrikaans, right? It's very specific, very specific rules. Linguistics is also very specific. So I think part of where I got to where I am now is my mind thinks in patterns, it, you know, and it thinks in this like staccato, these blocks of science. I was just going to say you know, biochemistry, right? I was just going to say everything yeah. you're describing is biochemistry. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So how did you go from languages? That, what happened? What was that pivot for you that, that got so you out of a lifetime of academia into, into nutrition? Yeah, so I, the reason I started the story with I was born in Europe is I was born in Europe, raised in Europe. I started my career in Europe, but then I got shuttled to the United States. I married an American, so I was actually on track in languages a lot of times. You can go into any career in Europe. So I was kind of starting, I was interning as part of my degree with a number of different international companies, and one of them was a bank in Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, it was interesting. So let me go back and say, how did I end up at a bank in Germany? Because my internships as part of my degree required me to live and work overseas to be immersed in a language. An internship, right? I mean, we couldn't get our degree in England unless you had a fluency in what you were studying, whether it was architecture, in my case, language. So it was amazing to me that my first immersion as part of my degree was in probably one of the greatest wine villages in the south of France that I never knew I was in. So it's called the Condrieu, and I was actually interning with ICI, which is a big chemical company, but I was teaching English, you know, to French executives. But little did I know until years later, that is probably one of the finest <laughs> regions in the Rhone Valley. Well, you don't know when you're 20, oh my gosh. Then I was offered a job. Uh, I had an I was offered either to be there or to intern, and I still can't believe this at the tourist office in Chamonix, in France. So oh, Chamonix. Come on. In Chamonix. I know. I was. I, I know. So Chamonix, everyone is like home with Mont Blanc. It's probably one of the most precious ski towns in. in I was going to say it's the, like the best ski town in the world. Yeah. 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 Well, years later, I went on to actually host ski trips there, so I got to know Chamonix, and like, oh my gosh. I was offered to work here at the tourist office. And I'm, no, I'll go to the south of France, you know, or where it could be in the Rhone Valley. So um, so then I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, now I need to go and speak German 
Yeah, so I ended up in Switzerland. So if any of you know, the German that we speak in Switzerland is a completely different, different dialect. So I ended up going back to England speaking Swiss German and Swiss my German. professor said, we can't even understand what you're saying. So then I thought, what am I going to do? So I applied for a job. I found my own job at the Tyson Bank in, in Frankfurt. So this big international bank that's now part of another bank. And so there I was in Frankfurt learning German, found my own job. Met an American, knew I had to go back to England to finish my degree. So I did. And then we moved to New York. I'm like, great, I can continue international banking. This is going to be my career. Until I learned that I was in upstate New York, six hours from the city on the Canadian border in the middle of nowhere, um, which was going to be the home of my husband's in the army. So they were building what we call the 10th Mountain Division. And I was just this chick from Europe, 23 or 26 years of age, thinking, what am I going to do now? Not only do people not understand my my British English, they would hang up the phone. But the key bank, New York, was not interested in hiring someone, you know, from overseas. So there I was stuck in upstate New York and thought, what am I going to do? I worked for the limited for $3 an hour selling clothes. That's my, you know, my wonderful career. But I think to the point of where my journey started with food was that growing up in Europe, food was so important. Like in South Africa, it's so important to our table. Uh, because of what we're exposed to, that I had never seen things like Doritos before. I've never eaten corn. Let me, you know, like a fresh corn. And yet, here I was in upstate New York. It was very impoverished at that time. There were very few, I don't think I saw people who didn't have any, didn't have a white skin. So, you know, you come from Europe, which is so multicultural. You're sitting on the train and everyone is from a different culture and hearing different languages. To coming to a place where we only spoke English, um, the food was stuff I couldn't recognize. And yet what I realized was people were struggling with their health. I'd not seen this before. So I got interested in, well, gosh, what's this intersection between food and diet and people having health problems? That's what got me started and saying, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So my language took me to a place in Europe where I met my husband. He brought me to America. I thought, in this huge food and cultural desert, it's changed a lot now, this is a long time ago. And that's got me started, like, well, where can I study more? Um, and then we moved to Maryland as part of my husband's job and I enrolled at the University of Delaware in what my human nutrition and dietetics and got rolling in nutrition. That's, that's how I got. Okay, started. well, I didn't know any of that. That's all new to me. So that's amazing. <laughs> um, and makes total sense. But now tell me, right. So you come from this European kind of Mediterranean European understanding of, you know, food and how important it is and part yeah. of the family and health and things. And you enroll in dietetics. Yes, I did. We have to talk about this, right? This is the elephant. Yes, we do have to. This is the elephant on the podcast. Um, yeah. Tell me ab about your experience of, of dietetics, of studying dietetics, not, not oh, working as a dietetic. Yeah. Well, there was two things that were interesting. And again, this is where your culture and mine come in, in that when I went to university in England, it was a very competitive process, which it is, it is in the United States. But you can't fail. You know, this is an honor. Back when I went to school, uh, went to university, um, you work here, tiny off. There is no such thing as special credit or doing extra this or extra that. So, which is very different for me because in the UK, it's passed. 
or you're out of university. There is no makeup, right? So you're very honored to be able to go and you don't mess it up because you literally text. So things have changed, obviously, and people may think, oh my gosh, you know, that's a very, you know, elite system. But I actually liked it because it meant you didn't mess up. You know, you passed and you worked hard. Sure enough, nobody failed, but it was hard. So that was the first thing I'm like, what, what is this here? And why is this system asking me to take calculus and do algebra? I'm like, I did that when I was 15. So anyway, so there was a lot of things that I thought were odd about the degree. But anyway, when I got beyond that, in studying dietetics, I remember very, very clearly, and y'all appreciate this, that, you know, when I did an internship, I'm part of the internship as well, you have to produce these research papers and do these studies and presentations. And I was thinking before we came on, there was one particular physician who was brilliant, Nicholas, and I can't remember his last name, who did amazing work with pancreatic cancer. He had a very, very specific protocol, and he was helping people basically climb out of cancer. This was probably in the 80s. I wish I could remember his name. He was an MD and he died maybe about five years ago. But he was helping people live where medicine said they couldn't, you know? And so it was very food, very almost macrobiotic focused, a lot of stuff in the sunlight, brilliant. In my like, finally, you know, I'm going to write about this guy. And I ran headlong into my professor and said, that's not broken, that's junk. I was just, I remember my jaw falling to the ground thinking, what am I doing in this degree when this innovation and this brilliant physician who was publishing these ideas with, they were being taken away from us as the future of the field, right? So, so I ended up, to be honest with you, and it's still my frustration today, which I want to talk about, you know, graduating with a degree that told me how, what the molecules look like as they changed in the Krebs cycle, but none of it prepared us for how to talk to people about food. You know, it, we, we never really studied applied biochemistry, which is why genetics is so exciting because you see biochemistry in action. What we came out with was the calling card that we knew some fundamental algorithms and we could talk to people about bagels and chicken breasts, which I've never eaten, you know, like, and these diets that, uh, that were numerically driven, you know, mathematical diets, count this, do that, fit people into this algorithm. And, uh, you know, I, I found it extremely discouraging to the, to the extent that on graduation day, I never bothered to show up. So if I graduated from a degree in, you know, in England, that was great, but I was like, this is, this doesn't work with me, this curve busting, very methodical, mechanistic, conservative look at nutrition where we didn't even talk to people about how or learn how to talk to people about food and what food meant in their body. That just was discouraging for me. It just was. <laughs> so. Yes. No, that <laughs> that sounds um, very familiar to me. And as we've discussed many times, you know, I had a very similar journey, um, you know, the same kind of disillusionment and disappointment that, you know, and again, interesting conversation yesterday about the reductionist nature of it. Exactly. Yeah, That's that, you know, all food can be reduced to a nutrient, micronutrient or macronutrient distribution. And I even, you know, remember, like if you, you were talking about algorithms or, or equations, you know, if you want to calculate how many calories a person should have to have an ideal body weight, they should eat these number of calories and expend this and they'll have a perfect body weight. And we know that's absolutely not true now. Right. So I think you and I had a very similar journey. We both completed our degree, 
but um, but with great disappointment and disillusionment that actually it wasn't so much about food and it actually right. wasn't so much about what people were doing. It was more more this kind of academic idea um, yeah. of, of and you know um, as of nutritioneering of, of of nutrition reduced. So what happened? So, you know, I, I, I went traveling. I mean, that was my response. I was like, I'm not going to do this. I can't work in this space. I'm just going to go travel. What was your response to, to finishing your degree of dietetics? So what was interesting is I think part of my internship, very different, right? We're interning in things like burn units and community nutrition, which I found quite interesting. Um, but as part of that internship, I actually started working with Marriott. And when I graduated, I already had a job in probably one of the most interesting places ever. I ended up uh, working in downtown Baltimore in what we would call like a step down unit. So an acute care step down where, you know, you have patients who would discharge from the ER or whatever, intensive injuries. Um, and so I ended up doing probably nine months or 12 months in a clinical facility where I really learned, I worked with a lot of ventilator patients. I really honed clinical skills in that very conservative space, you know, in our mechanistic reductionist space. But I actually enjoyed it. Then all of a sudden, my husband said, guess what, we're going back to Germany. I'm like, oh man, I just got my degree started. I just got my career started. So whoop, we went back overseas, which is great because growing up in Europe, it was wonderful. And I thought, now what am I going to do? So I ended up working for um, the U.S. Army. Um, I probably like a tiny salary part-time in a hospital for the U.S. Army in Heidelberg, Germany, which is not a bad thing. That very soon turned in actually to working with another organization, European Preventive Medicine. And I helped build out the first wellness center um, in Europe for the U.S. Army. Uh, and it was cool because the way I built it it was at the beginning of the HMO era, so we had a lot of data, hence I love data. And I said, well, let's not just put a nice for you program out there. Let's create programming that reflects the ICD-9 codes that this population presenting with. So a lot of it was injury prevention work or, you know, had a lot of maternal related uh, work because you have a lot of military family members who are pregnant. Who's going to take care of that? You know, where's the preventive medicine? Where, where's the programming? So that's what I did um, until like the late 90s. And then, you know, one thing led to another. So, you know, maybe this isn't working for me. So I ended up actually working for a U.S. company, completely different, got out of food and nutrition altogether. I was attached to food and nutrition to this company and that they were, um, I had to build a network so we could retrieve products from around the world uh, for US companies. So let's say there's a new product coming out in Singapore that's a snack for kids or whatever. Um, we actually I had to develop a field that could help move products around the world for innovation. Yeah, it was really interesting. That and does so yeah. I know it was fascinating because I had to travel. I was in London every three weeks or wherever and all over the, all over the place in Europe. Um, but then that joy came to an end in like 2000 or 2001, I had to move back to America, time was up. Um, and then I knew from that work with that company that I was interested in trends, food trends. I was interested in science and food trends. So I never stepped back into nutrition for a bit here. Um, so then I worked with the Mintel Group as a senior research analyst. So Mintel is a British company that has big, big positioning or big, big US headquarters in Chicago. 
and they could see that I could look at data and patterns. And so what I did for them is I produced market intelligence reports in the food and restaurant industry, mm-hmm. which was cool. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the people that read these are like the, the C-suite, if you will, of all the Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. So again, a lot of travel, but that was right doing a PhD every month because I was producing um, data-driven reports. You know, these are trending reports that a PepsiCo or whatever major company is going to look at and say, what's our competition and what's the opportunity in the marketplace? Um, But the reason that that was important is because you have to sift through a lot of data and you have to find the stories and you have to do it fast and you have to do it so it's actionable. So you could see that what I was doing was pattern recognition to get to the point fast, which is why genetics works for me because it's about seeing patterns. It's about, you know, it's about seeing patterns like as 3X or 4% stuff, but looking for patterns within that data to help tell the client's story. So um, that's really, you know, absolutely. But how, okay, so. I mean, yes, absolutely makes sense. So how did you find your way into genetics? What was your entry point into genetics? Um, yeah, so this is where our story comes from. I knew that I wanted to go back into nutrition. I'm like, this world of being a data analyst, a research analyst, it's hard, right? Research is hard. And there's a lot of pressure to push and analyze data and put out these reports. And it gets to be pretty tedious. So I knew going back to my roots, I said, well, you know, we still haven't solved this issue of people being left in the food wasteland. You know, the science does one thing and then here you need to go to your kitchen and follow this recipe or buy your bagels or whatever. But nobody was walking across the no man's land. And so I stepped back in very early on in this kind of culinary nutrition space. Um, and my father, my stepfather was so instrumental here because he was in the wine business for 30 years. He was the ingredient business and then the wine business. And one day in France, my parents lived in France, he said to me, you know, Amanda, language, wine has its own language. It has a soul, it has a heart, it has legs, it has arms. I'm like, that's brilliant. We need to teach people that in food. And so I started my company, Field to Plate, as you remember. I and do. it was very food and culinary driven, had an environmental foundation. But I wanted to teach clinicians that the way to people's health is through their body, through their mouth. And if you can't talk a sensory language, if you can't understand why some food does or doesn't work for them, then you're missing this huge opportunity. So coming all the way, so I did a lot of work in the food and culinary space, did tons of culinary workshops around the U.S. And then I ended up in South Africa and I met you because I was doing these food-driven and sensory events. And, um, and I didn't Everyone was yeah. talking about your name in South Africa. It's like, have you been to one of... Amanda's culinary, you were doing kind of this, these culinary immersion experiences, yeah. which were very yeah. unique and very new. No one was doing yes. and you were really making a name for yourself in that space. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. And so ended up like a couple of times we ended up in, in Johannesburg, that amazing little conference that offered a big conference that Claire put on. And at the same time as I was teaching, I was actually producing these navigable maps. I call them roadmaps that help us organize information in navigable ways. And this comes from working as a, you know, research analyst. Like you have to see patterns in noise. 
And so I saw patterns in the noise of science. And you and I were at this conference. Did you know what, Amanda? We talked about nutrigenomics. Said, These maps will work with nutrigenomics or nutrigenetics. I said, well, what's that? <laughs> then I heard you speak. And you said, but these maps will still work, Amanda. I'm like, well, I don't know how to make them work. So tell me more. And that's how you and I met. And so it was really you and you turning to me and saying, you know, I met this friend, Christine Houghton, who's been on your podcast. It's such a great listen to know her story. And um, she said, you know, between your work and Christine, I'm like, I met this brilliant scientist and she explained biochemistry this way. And I know nutrigenetics and you know how to translate it into food, Amanda. I said, well, I need to take a look at that. And so my journey was actually born from you saying, what if? Um, and then from that, like a year or two later, um, we all were together in Johannesburg at the Translational Nutrigenomics Conference, right? Which was your idea. It was your baby. Yeah, I brought us together. Brought us together. That's right. I brought us together, the three of us. And we did. We brought together. I mean, Christine has this unique ability to teach biochemistry in a way that you understand why and how you're going to use it with a patient and with people. And I obviously have the genetics thing and you had this culinary kind of immersion thing. So, I mean, it was almost like, as I said, the birth of culinary translation, translational culinary genomics was kind mm -hmm. of birthed out of the three of us, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, at this little translational nutrigenomics symposium in Johannesburg, South Africa and, and started there. And then of course, between the three of us have, we've been able to bring it, you know, all over the world, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, that was an amazing conference. And we could see what was happening with the crowd. And, you know, the one thing I remember afterwards, because Christine's such a good teacher in biochemistry and has taught us, and I've learned so much from her about how you, and you too, how we translate these molecules and make them accessible. But the first thing, half the audience just stood up and said, well, wait, which biochemistry book? Should we go again? Like, oh no. Oh no. no, no, don't go to the biochemistry book. Yeah. Not the molecule that's the story. So anyway, and then I think all of us, we kind of, you, we were going to do the Manuka course, but then I kind of broke off and you produced that. And then we sort of went our own ways, right? And then probably in the last two or three years, our, our you know, our fields are converging again. So we bring our yeah, so, I mean, you, journeys back wrote this amazing book genomic kitchen which is you know one of the one of its one of a kind really in the space of genomics in fact probably the only one i know of really i mean other than the recipe book i did where you yeah. really translated genomics into a culinary world and you still that book is iconic it gets spoken about all the time <laughs> um what year did you do that what when did you do that 2019, because I figured out after we met, we did our thing. Then I worked with um, Joe Beltman and Bobby Klein for a while. That's right. Really, like you two really mentored me. So I was one of the luckiest people in the world because I had the pioneers mentoring me. And pioneers and good mentors will take the time to teach. And I, I think that's a real pearl. Like, you know, that's how we, we work with the next generation is we take the time to explain patiently. Um, so... And um, so from that work, I knew I could, I have much better understanding of the science, which then led to, well, how do I give tools and how do I organize this science into actionable ingredients and tools? And what are the rules? Um, and how do we preserve these bioactives that are so, so important to, you know, gene ignition or silencing or whatever we're trying to do. And 
you know, what became very clear is we can now write recipes that speak to our genes. There's some rules, there's specific ingredients, there's what are you trying to achieve in biochemistry, um, but the public doesn't care about that. They're like, what's, you know, but it's not that they don't care. It's like, how can oh, we I say like, what, what should I eat for breakfast? The thing I care about <laughs> most is what should I eat for breakfast? Yeah. And what we do with culinary genomics or genomics is we say, you know, we can help you. What you eat for breakfast is what you desire, you know, what shape you culturally, but what you also eat is what works for your genes. So how do you know what works for your genes? Because they steer the biochemistry and the operating system of your body. So that book came out in 2019 where I was organizing specific ingredients, explaining how and why and how we put them together and how this influences your health, which takes us to this 21st century conversation. And you were, you, and you know, absolutely were using your food maps with genomics. So it all, yeah. I mean, it, it, yes. it absolutely happened. I love hearing the story. And so it's interesting. So we kind of, I mean, what's interesting is what started at that symposium in Johannes did manifest in, a, in an extraordinary way. And in fact, is still manifesting because the three of us yeah. are still working very closely together. And we're mm -hmm. going, you and I are going to be speaking at a symposium in Australian November that mm -hmm. Christine is holding and we're the invited guests. So um, swings and roundabouts, right? Swings and roundabouts. It's amazing how the world turns and we can all be together again because we haven't all been together for quite some no, time. No, we haven't. So we have a lot no. to celebrate in, in Brisbane in, in, in a, at this wonderful, and if anyone is left listening and lives in Australia, you you really should be there. I think it's going to be quite, yeah. something quite special. But um, so what I want to say is that, you know, I, I do think this kind of trio has been quite amazing. And in fact, um, you're one of those, you're one of those, you don't actually work for 3x4, but I sometimes feel like you do in the sense that we love sending um, people to you, you know, and, and to Christine. So you're like the two people where I feel like I will always send practitioners, whoever they are, to, to both of you, because I know that, that first of all, um, we have the same kind of philosophy around learning mm -hmm. and, and nutrition and eating and food, but also because I know that you're both storytellers, you're both storytellers. And, um, you know, and, and it's, a, it's almost like that responsibility of to unlearn and relearn. And I think that's a lot mm -hmm. of our journey has been to unlearn and relearn. Um, but also, interesting enough, whenever I send people to, to your programs, they come back and go, wow, you know, Amanda is just brilliant at biochemistry. And of course, it's the same, it's the same thing with Christine, you know, and I don't yeah. think anyone's ever said that about me, but um, it's definitely not my strength. But it's extraordinary. They'll come back and they go, you know, for the first time, Amanda has has taught me not only biochemistry, but also culinary. And I think when you can put together those two, which people see as very far apart, but actually aren't, um, I really think you've got a, a lot of magic happening, you know, when you bring those two together. Yeah, um, but it was, it's the missing point, right? It's it's the missing, it's things being missed. The point about universities and what is so frustrating is the curriculum, at least in the United States, has not changed that much. So there's a number of things happening. First of all, quite a few of my students or clinicians that I mentor are PhD, they're all faculty at universities and so frustrated that, you know, the, the only, that, that there's, we still haven't moved people ahead. 
you know, I get invited like you probably to speak and to engage senior clinicians or master's level students say, look, you really need to head in this direction. But trying to make a difference is it's like, why, first of all, why is it we're not teaching genomics as a foundation course? Or yeah. if you're going to work in nutrition science and you want to be a dietitian or a clinician or whatever, because this is 21st century nutrition and medicine, this is where we're going. Number one, and number two, if we don't teach, if we don't embed this in universities, then guess what's going to happen? Especially if you're a dietitian, every other healthcare practitioner is going to be in the nutrition science space, and they should be, you know, pretending. And, and they are. In, you know, and I would, I would add, and they are. <laughs> Yeah, and they are, and then yeah. you're left there. The you know the economy of nutrition, dietetic, whoever you are, you know, with a bunch of naysayers saying we should still be, you know, all food fits and all this stuff. Okay, whatever you want to say it, and whatever platform you want to say it, but your job is actually to provide the found educational foundation so that people who have degrees in nutrition science can actually practice 21st century nutrition science. And yet you're still sweeping it under the rug, you know, yeah. and then you have these academicians trying desperately to figure out how on earth are we going to set up the future of dietitians if that's what we're looking at, um, when you actually don't give them the actual, the right educational foundation. So um, I'm hoping to write a white paper on that with a couple Yeah, I of, think you and I, I was standing yeah, on soapbox about that. And, and it's not just you and I, I mean, it's not just us. I mean, there's a group of us who would like to see things different. And, you know, in the 23 years I've been working in, in nutrigenomics, I think we've gone from teaching zero nutrigenomics in, in nutrition degrees to teaching one hour in a whole degree. So we've come very far, which is, is potentially a failure of ours that we haven't been able to give a good enough argument. But I do think there's that parallel universe is happening. And I think that, um, while I kind of accept the failure of not having being able to get nutrigenomics into undergraduate curriculum, um, I do think there is another world where we have had impact. And I mean, you know, we wouldn't be having this podcast if you weren't extremely impactful. And and you have, and you have, um, you have changed paradigm. You have forged your own path. You have written books in a space that weren't before. You have had conversations and. And, you know, I always think about um, what does it take for someone to, to go up against the status quo? Like, what, what is it? And, and, you know, when I think of you, um, one is, you know, you have this unique background, which I think is just priceless and very precious, but also it's about courage, courage and, yes. and, and bravery. And I think that that's, you know, one thing that I've always seen in you that I've always really, really admired is you are extremely courageous when it means coming up against, you know, all the naysayers, all the status quo and saying there's a better way of doing things. So I'm just going to make some comments and then I'm going to ask you to reply. The other <laughs> thing is, um, in you know, this, this podcast is so fun. One of the things that keeps on coming up, aside from the second career nutrition, um, is how until we bring social science into biological science, we're never going to solve any problems, right? So just when you go and study nutrition and it's purely physics, chemistry, biochemistry, um, statistics, mm -hmm. and nutrients, we're never going to solve food. We're never going to solve malnutrition or obesity or chronic disease or any of that. 
and what we really need is to bring the social sciences, anthropology, kind of yeah. psychology, so you know, economics, um, into nutrition. And and I, you know, I would add, obviously, we have to bring genetics in. And I think because of your background, because of where you came, you brought social science with you into mm. dietetics before it was even articulated that way. And I'm just kind of articulating it now. And that is probably in my mind, why you've been able to have such a great impact is because a lot of what you are is this blend um, of both social science and biological science. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think like you, when you grow up in an international space and you cross borders and you work across borders and we work with so many cultures, it comes with a healthy foundation of compassion as well, uh, you know, which is, which is an interesting perspective or a willingness to understand other cultures and know what the, the gaps are and the patience that's needed and the time to stand still and think about our impact in this world. But I think the other thing that you said that's so important, which is such a passion of mine, you said, you know, there's until we bring in the social sciences and the anthropology and I put compassion and respect in there. Until we cross that with nutrition, we're going to struggle. So the field of human social genomics blows my mind. I think it's probably the most important field of science that is alive right now that takes genomics and helps us understand the why behind illness and, you know, brings in the, the dynamics of socioeconomics, which I've always found so interesting. So that, but also look at the work in, um, what is it called right now, compassionate, I'm missing it right now, but it's it's all this work that's helping understand the mind. And I think the the researcher and doctor, is it Bill Patterson, who wrote, who's written Brain Energy, is brilliant. Where he's talking about metabolism is the key to understanding, you know, mental health and mental illness. And he he puts that within this beautiful kind of casing of the environment. To your point, you know, society and the social impact. Uh, that is driving mental illness, but really it's undermining metabolic intelligence, right? And mitochondrial. I, I love it. You know, I, I saw a post by James Maskell yesterday or the day before where he talks about, yeah. did you see that about where he talks about connection versus, and, and you know, um, when I started out in genetics, I, I started out with this very simplistic idea that the food we ate and and the exercise we did and the nutrients mm -hmm. we took and the supplements we took would change gene expression. And my and and that's totally true. That there's nothing untrue about that. But my big aha moment of the last couple of years is actually all the other things that change gene expression. Yeah. And of course, what is one of the most powerful is connection, connection, yeah. community. Yeah. And and it, and I you know I don't I mean most people know that I, I I immigrated to the US only just over a year ago, so you could you know I'm I'm fresh fresh of the boat, you know and immigration as you well know um, is extremely difficult culturally, um, dogs children schools yeah. school system friends you leave you know especially later in life you leave later friends and and towards the end of last year I actually was not. And I've always been extremely well, fit and healthy. I'm one of those people and in, came into functional medicine without a dysfunction, which is very unusual. But end of last year, I was feeling extremely ill and tired and fatigued. And it was terrible. Anyway, went back to South Africa at the end of the year and the sun was shining. I got back in the ocean every single day. 
And after I swam in the ocean every day, I'd make my friends for coffee every single day. And I immersed mm-hmm. myself in my friendships, immersed myself. And within two weeks, I was 100% well. Yeah. 100% well. And yes, the ocean. And that's another conversation. And yes, the sun. And that's another conversation. But after that time coming back, I had this incredible reflection that I got ill from loneliness. That was a result of my immigration. Because I was eating the same and I was exercising the same and I was doing the same. But the thing that I was missing in my life as a result of the immigration was connection and community. And I was lonely. And the moment I could rebuild that, I was like, I just had the most extraordinarily powerful lesson that no one could have taught me at a university. So now I'm a devotee, right? And this is social genomics. This is is, brilliant work. So Slavich and Cole, I mean, it just explains probably things like the blue zones, you know, what these, this observational science, they are actually able to show it at a gene signaling level. It is mind-blowingly brilliant. And then, you know, the work, other work in telomeres and connection. And I think, um, what's her name? Lisa Apple has a new book out. I mean, the science of loneliness is real. Um, It's absolutely right. And I think you and I are going to be spending the next couple of years doing more work um, and, and more conversations around this. And I think, you know, I'll never forget the Mediterranean pyramid, you know, where the baseline is conviviality. I always love that word. Mm-hmm. You know, and people say, yeah, especially in America, they go, what? You know, conviviality. Yeah. And that is that, that sharing of food, cooking together, shopping together, eating together. And I think, you know, we're moving into another, into to the next chapter of understanding. And I do think a lot of it's going to be around connection, community, social, same thing. So what a great, what a great way to start tying up because you and I could talk for hours. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Okay, but you're not off the hook here, Amanda. For someone who, I mean, I think, I think what's so great is I think both myself and everyone listening would have got a much better sense of who you are, the journey you've taken. And, and it is always a journey. I mean, lots of twisting and turning, lots of stops and oh, stops. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you you have absolutely have arrived. You're having an impact. You're a great inspiration to so many practitioners globally, not just in the US. What is the advice that you would give to someone who is starting out in the profession, who's kind of choosing that first degree? Because I always say, I'm don't get too hung up on what that first degree is it won't be your last. Like it doesn't actually matter so much, but you do your first degree. So let's assume they've chosen their first degree. What is the advice that you would give them before they're heading out on a journey that would allow them to have the extraordinary career that, that you have? You know, it's interesting because I've been ahead in a different direction answering that because you're saying it's got nothing to do with genetics. What's your advice, you know? So so I think the first thing when I think back to my journey, and it's similar to you, is don't don't feel you have to conform. I mean, be respectful. But if you've only grown up in one community or one country, the greatest thing you can do in this world is to get out of your own, not comfort zone, but your own culture if you can, and go experience somewhere else. You know, go and walk your life in somebody else's shoes. Um, I think it's really important. There are no boundaries. And I think, you know, we've been around this world longer than some people that are, are listening in. And 
our world was probably had a lot more boundaries and restrictions than the world. If you're just like, if you're in your twenties or thirties, uh, the world has changed. There's no reason you have to sit where you are to do your work. You could be the other side of the world now. So don't let traditions and conformity hold you back or the shoulders or the wouldas or this is the way you've got to do it because you don't have to. Um, that's, that would be the first thing I would say, you know, go do an internship for your life somewhere you haven't been, um, you know, to a place that calls you. It's important to sit down and talk to those people. Oh, I love that. And and I think that's, again, something that you and I, we're global travelers. We can't stay still for very long. We love, you know, <laughs> living in different countries. And the things that have happened to me that have enabled me to be where I am now would never have happened if I hadn't grabbed my backpack um, and 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 started traveling. And I think the greatest growth we can experience is a combination of travel and listening, as you say, um, and and yes. like you, and an openness to to other cultures. And I think, you know, that's when the magic happens. And I think that's what we we're talking about. Exactly, and I, and I think too. Something is I've gotten older. That's so so important. You said listening, but empathy and compassion are so important. You don't have to agree with someone. But we're in a world now where we have so many barriers that being able to get out and go to a place where you maybe it is out of your comfort zone, it's a great way to learn empathy and compassion because people are genuinely interested in you. They just are. And what, you know, so it, maybe, uh, to end on this story that, you know, I was um, got out of America for a month uh, last fall. Like, you know, I just needed to go home. I need to go back to Europe. My genes were calling, right? <laughs> And the menu, we ended up in the Azores, went to my bear on the Azores and Corsica, but the Azores that never been to is beautiful chain of islands in the middle of the Atlantic, which is wonderful to be in the middle of nowhere. But you know, I, even though my parents lived in Portugal for years, I really don't speak Portuguese. I don't frankly speak Portuguese. So to be frankly understood me, which they were great. But we were in this one little tiny village and you can relate to this. And we just walked into the village in our hotel or what have you. And then, you know, right, you can imagine in Portugal, the bars are open at like 6 a.m., right? And there's the people that are just standing there, they're having tiny beers or tiny coffees. And you can think, oh my gosh, this will never happen in America. But it's part of their culture, right? And even though we didn't speak a lick of Portuguese, somebody could speak a tiny bit of English, and, you know, coffees were brought all around. And, you know, all of a sudden, the barriers of cultures come down and you just laugh and you think, hey, I could live here. These people are fun, you know, but it's, uh, I remember many times in Africa, like just like, just getting out and getting away and people are people, they're, you know, they're interesting. And I think it's, it comes back to connectivity. That's what hugs your genes, right? That's what- Oh, I love that. They need I to quote you on that, you know, connectivity, that's what hugs your genes. I think that might yeah, be a book, a book we have to write at some point when we've got time. No kidding. <laughs> Amanda Oswald, it's been an absolutely wonderful hour spent chatting with you. I look forward to seeing you in person. If I do not see you before Australia, then I very much look you forward there. to seeing you on the other side of the world and for yeah, having a proper proper catch up some beautiful food some lovely wine and we can celebrate this journey together but thank you so much for sharing your story thank you but it was great to be uh, to be a guest here thank you and catch up <laughs>